welcome to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast, where we interview the world's leading CEOs, business executives, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and authors. Our mission is to learn the strategies and tactics that have helped our guests succeed in business and life, and share those lessons with you so that you can become the Bulletproof Entrepreneur. My name is Chiu Dogu, and I'm the co-founder and COO of Adobe Media Group. Dogu Media Group is a podcast marketing and new media agency that helps corporations create and amplify their story via high-quality branded audio content that builds a community of highly engaged fans who are their ideal clients for their premium products and services. And now, without further ado, on with the show. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Sales Mastery Summit. If you want to learn how to grow your sales using Gorilla B2B sales strategies, then you'll definitely want to check out this summit. 10 world-class entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and sales and marketing professionals are going to share their best-kept secrets on how to grow your sales in the B2B space. You'll learn things like how to leverage your skills, how to apply LinkedIn to get non-stop leads, how to prospect and win, how to be a go-giver so that you can get more clients by actually serving them first, and of course, the art of closing the deal with your prospects and clients so that they'll feel like they're doing business with their long-lost friend. I have speakers coming from the likes of Dan Locke, Bob Berg, Paul Brody, Kimanzi Constable, Josh Elledge, Dr. Cindy McGovern, Tyle Roxon, Monique Russell, and Karen Yankovic. They'll be sharing their best-kept secrets on how you can succeed and win in your B2B sales goals in 2020. The summit starts November the 18th and 19th and will feature 30-minute actionable keynote addresses to equip you with all the tools and strategies you need to succeed. If you want to sign up, go to www.b2bsamas.com or www.b2bsalesmasterysummit.com to sign up for the B2B Sales Mastery Summit. I can't wait to see you there. Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. I have two special guests on the show with me today. I'm talking to Mr. Mark Epstein and Mr. Rob Shelton. They're the co-authors of the new book titled The Brilliant Jerk Conundrum, Thriving with, with and Governing a Dominant Visionary. I'm pleased to have them on the show today to tell us a little bit more about themselves, their new book, and of course, leadership lessons we can learn by working with brilliant jerks and how to manage brilliant jerks in our careers. So, But before I get into the topic of our discussion today, let me quickly read off their bios. So Mark Epstein, PhD, until recently is a distinguished research professor of management at the Jones Graduate School of Business at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He was formerly a professor at the Stanford Business School, Harvard Business School, and NCIAD in Europe. He has extensive academic and practical experience in implementation of corporate strategies. He's worked with many companies, both for-profit and non-profit around the world. He currently consults and speaks with board of directors, organizational trust, and on corporate accountability. I'm pleased to have him on the show today, as well as Mr. Rob Shorten, who's a globally recognized Silicon Valley-based consultant, author, and speaker on entrepreneurial excellence, 
breakthrough innovation, and scaling to drive rapid growth. For the past 40 years, Mr. Shelton has served as a trusted partner and advisor to CEOs and senior executives at leading organizations in Silicon Valley and around the world. He led the innovation practice at PwC and was the founder of PwC's Global Financial Services Innovation Center. So with those two distinguished resumes read, I'd like to welcome you guys to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Really pleased to be here. Awesome. Awesome, guys. So now, guys, I read a bit about both your bios, but I want to talk about, you know, how you two got together to write this book. So what's the story behind the book? So so let me me just start uh, briefly. So Rob and I uh, uh, have known each other for some time, and in 2006 wrote a book uh, with uh, uh, Professor Tony Davila uh, uh, called Making Innovation Work. Mm. And that, that book did very well. It was translated into about a dozen languages, and, and it really had, a, uh, had a, quite an impact. And we were very pleased with the way the, work, uh, the, the book uh, uh, was uh, received, but there was one part of the book that I think we, we realized we didn't cover, which is how to deal with some of these leaders, some of these founders of organizations that are really creative, really innovative, but also sometimes difficult to work with. And so we said, so how do you, the conundrum is, how do you keep this innovation going that you so desperately need in organizations, while at the same time maintaining the control and governance that is also necessary? And so that led us to this um, more recent book. Uh-huh. And, and Rob, from your perspective, in writing the book and doing the research, I noticed you guys talked about a lot of the big teams. You talked about Uber, you talked about Tyrannos, you talked about Tesla, you talked about um, Steve Jobs. So when it comes to innovation, which you're a master practitioner of, what were some of the things you noticed from some of these innovative visionaries and how did you correlate between innovation and then this um, jerk aspect of their character? <laughs> well, it's a great question. I smiled because of the way you asked the question. Um, what we did is we looked at a great number of these and have personal experience dealing with them at the mid-level and at the senior level all the way through an organization. But we, we chose seven of them to highlight in the book because you can't list all of the stories. And, and they, they were good. So what we found when we looked across the spectrum is that each one is unique. Each has their own mixture of, of capabilities and charisma. But there were several characteristics. One, every one of them we looked at appeared to be or was proven to be brilliant. Mm-hmm. But many of them also had gaps in their, mm-hmm. in their capabilities. Some were quite young when they stepped into the leadership role, 19, 20, um, and they didn't have all of the experience. So while they had uh, a stellar you know, uh, career relative to, to their intellectual capabilities, they, they lacked some areas. The other is that they were um, inherently rule breakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, these folks could envision things that others hadn't and had to drive, the powerful drive to bring it about. They had personalities that were charismatic, um, could attract uh, employees. They attracted investors um, and they pulled people with them and they demanded these people work as hard as they were to achieve these things. So they were compelling in every different way, but they also were 
how do I say, multivalent personalities. They could shift from being role models with great visions and, and intrepid business folks to being quite difficult, not only with their own people, but with outsiders. Mm. And on occasion, they stepped over ethical boundaries or started doing what we call in the Valley, faking it till you make it, um, providing a little bit of a fudge on, on the facts in order to keep the street or investors happy. And as Charlie Munger uh, mentioned uh, at Berkshire Hathaway, that's the first step to full-fledged fraud. So we found this very complex capability, um, this person with great capabilities interspersed with characteristics that made them both potentially wildly successful, but also a little dangerous. Mm. And from going from wildly suspect, um, successful to also a little dangerous, I noticed that in some of those cultures, it was a high-performance culture. So take, for example, um, Jeff Bezos, who was heavily featured in the book. It talks about that spirit of excellence that must have been maximized at all times. And even though majority of um, Amazon's employees are lowly paid, they still have to still produce at an excellent rate. So talk a little bit about, or maybe you two, Mark, can share on the drive to create an excellent business, high-performance culture, but also because of that drive, it's now creating a toxic environment where a lot of people are either burning out or having interpersonal relationship issues that will also spill over from their work life into their home life. I'll take a, the first cut at that, and I'll, okay. I'll keep it short because, and let Mark jump in. But remember, these people are driven by a vision. They mm. they have something that they see. One of the board members we talked to said they not only can see into the future, they can see around corners. They mm. they see things and and are driven to bring them about, and they expect others to to follow in the same way with the same energy. And they're unrelenting in that. You mentioned Bezos, but Steve Jobs was every bit as demanding. And you can go down the list of people, even Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, you know, pushed people. Every one of these folks has demanded that kind of excellence. Um, one of the issues is what kind of culture do they create when they do that? Mm. If they push too hard or in the wrong ways, it can become toxic. If they keep it healthy it may not be perfect for everyone, but it does provide a vehicle for bringing about great change in both business and society. Mark, well, you should yeah, add to like, that. I agree uh, completely with uh, Rob saying. I just one quick anecdote. Uh, so one of the people we were talking to uh, with one of these companies was suggesting that uh, the leader is wouldn't wouldn't see himself as a brilliant jerk. Mm. Just very demanding for, of excellence. And if people would give them the high quality and excellence they demand at all times, they wouldn't have to be mean and ha wouldn't have to create this toxic culture. But because people don't deliver the excellence that's necessary, then they have to be erratic and sometimes uh, uh, just downright mean to their employees. Mm. They do f oftentimes... Because of the, the spirit they have, the drive, they, they, they feel enabled um, to be mean, um, to be dismissive, uh, and also sometimes to be very harsh in their judgment of their teams, of their people, their partners. Oh, okay. Uh, could you say that again? You got cut off a little bit at the beginning. 
Okay. Um, these people, um, because they have such great vision, mm. uh, are often and are committed to it, they, they feel enabled and empowered to, to be quite short or mean um, or dismissive of their people, their teams, uh, and their partners. And mm. this creates a, a, a difficult environment for everyone in the company. Yeah. And as we were talking earlier before the interview, we, we mentioned how these characteristics parallel in different spheres of the world. We're talking religion, politics, uh, sports, media, entertainment, what have you. So does that mean that for someone to be a visionary, you kind of also have to have this um, you know, bad aspect to your, char- to your character as well? No. Uh, okay. I'll be very emphatic. You don't have to have it. <laughs> it, it, is, it is not a requirement, um, but it does happen. So as opposed mm. to saying, let's put someone in charge who's a visionary and hope that it works out okay, what Mark and I are saying from our analysis and from discussion with the board members that have dealt with this and the executives and, and dealing with it our, in our own lives is that uh, – uh, you should understand that some folks will need some coaching, some guidance. There will mm. need to be something more than just a hope that it will work out okay. But I will finish by saying there are leaders who are visionaries who are not jerks. You mm. It's not a prerequisite. Mm. No, right. Well, and there's, so there's no reason you have to be. And mm. that's really at the core of our book is that we really want these creative geniuses and heading up our company. Mm. But what that does is it, it puts a requirement on board members to manage those founders and CEOs. Mm. And that's providing guidance, it's providing the adult in the room when you have a 19 or 20 year old who really, you wouldn't expect to be able to manage a thousand person organization because mm. they don't have the experience. And, and, uh, you know, I think we see this constantly uh, in business. So we just saw this with Adam Newman being removed from WeWork. Yeah. And uh, another classic brilliant jerk. Uh, and, and so at some point, the board, has, or the board or the financiers have to say, we can't continue uh, to support this behavior. We think you have a great vision. You have a great personality, great charisma, but you're destroying this company for the long term. And just one more final comment uh, on your question. So uh, I think we see people like this in all walks of life. Uh, you mentioned religion and politics, certainly, and and in every field of sports and uh medicine and all the fields. And so I think it really is is a requirement that we learn how to thrive with them and how to manage them uh, so that we can get the great creativity and innovation that we want while still maintaining the, the discipline, control, and governance that we typically need. Mm. And let me jump in and just one small comment. Mm-hmm. We need these people. These are these are game changers. These are people that bring about uh, uh, new worlds, new business capabilities, social impact. Mm. These are folks that, that are the firebrands, the mavericks that we adore. But we should understand that with them, working with them has a responsibility to help them be successful and to work 
to minimize the downside risk. Mm. Now, I remember reading somewhere in the book that um, working with some of these brilliant visionaries, especially in, take for example, a private company or family-run company, the board members could be in, in interested parties. So either their children of the founder or their close friends. Yeah. Now, people like that, it's usually a rubber stamp board that, you know what, they just go along with whatever the founder or the CEO says. Now, how can the board members in such cases be empowered to say, hey, you know what, we need to actually put adults in the room and we need to actually fix this so that you don't run this company into the ground. Because in those situations, it's very hard to be independent. I could uh, make a case study for several um, religious as well as educational organizations that I've seen, private, that do have rubber stamp boards. And Mm -hmm. it just seems like the CEOs are... Uh, free to do whatever they want, and the board has no say in how to direct their activities. So, so two quick points, and then maybe Rob wants to add here. So, one is that we're seeing this. I just mentioned the Adam Newman story mm-hmm. of work, and we also have the Travis Kalanick story at Uber. These are companies where they did have control. Mm-hmm. We, Adam Newman had voting control. And his board still said, they came to him and said, we cannot continue this way. And the same with Uber. Now, uh, the, the people financing the company also ended up getting involved and in saying, we're not going to continue to provide the necessary financing unless we make a change here at the executive level. The other point I wanted to make is to your point about family-run companies. So I've, I've spent a lot of time with family-run companies. And my recommendation to those boards is that even though a a family might control the shares, it's still critical that you have independent board members Mm. because you need some outside person who can provide independent advice recommendations. and what we've done often to your situation where you have uh, many uh, children in, uh, that are part of the board looking to their, to their parent for guidance on how to vote, uh, I, I uh, have been pretty insistent that the, that the children, number one, learn about the business, not, not do any votes in the board that they don't understand what they're voting for, not just following the parents' advice. Uh, and uh, talking to the founder, the parent, if you will, the CEO, and say, if you want this business to succeed long term, if indeed you really want your children to take leadership roles in this company, you need to teach them about the business and they need to make independent decisions. And uh, so uh, I feel very strongly that for small privately held companies that we start getting independent board members in very early to give independent opinions and often contrary opinions. Mm. So too often, as you suggested, these, um, these family boards, they get from their friends and family, they get uh, a, a bunch of rubber stamps. And what we need are people to say, Uh, you're my friend, you're my relative, you're my father, but still we we need to think about a different way to do this because I don't think this is the right path. 
I agree I, with Mark. I, I, I'm not going to limit anything he said, however, just to um, private companies. I, I honestly believe that this issue of complacency, uh, an inactive board, a board that rubber stamps is common all the way through mm-hmm. around the world. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just a phenomenon that exists in one place. There, we, we tell the story in the book about uh, one board member who would fortune, a leading company who, who uh, was new to the board. And he, he was amazed that the, the whole board meeting was perfectly orchestrated. There was little or no room for conversation, certainly no constructive conversation or challenging. Uh, and at the end of it, he went to one of the senior board members and he said, so, so what's the role of a board member? I, I don't, don't understand. And the, the senior board member who had been there many years said, applause. And, and that's sort of what many CEOs want. But that's, that's a problem. Um, mm-hmm. That's the beginning of a very slippery slope. Mm-hmm. I want to add one other thing, though. It's not just the board. Executives need to be able to speak truth to power. They need okay. to be able to speak out. Employees need to be healthy and be heard. They shouldn't mm-hmm. be putting up with things that make them feel demeaned or, or put them in an ethical compromise. I think the VC, if they're involved, need to make the most of uh, what they have and, and they need to be instructive. They're, they're involved in this. And finally, investors need to be active. Um, you don't just put someone like this in place for the great vision that they have and sit back. That's mm-hmm. been the problem all along. People haven't demanded that there be an that Iraq happens actually can improve significantly. Uh, sorry, Rob, could you repeat the last part of that? Because you got cut off again. Yeah, sorry. Every time I try to say... Uh, so so um, the, uh, w- w- when you have the executives, the employees, the investors active uh, and bringing their, their perspectives to bear... Um, it, it allows the uh, visionary, the dominant visionary, um, to be successful. Mm-hmm. And that's a requirement these days. If you're going to put someone in that position or if you're going to follow them because they're a leader, uh, you need to take on the responsibility of being active. Okay. Now, what is your advice for executives or mid-level managers who do work with these brilliant individuals and who sometimes need to manage their excesses so that they can have a thriving work environment. Because somebody in that position feels, if I speak truth to power, it could cost me my job. You know, so what are some of the empowering things they can do or say to, you know, make the truth come as an easier pill for the visionary to swallow? Well, there's some transactional things. Uh, okay. One, to confront a, a visionary in a large public environment, a big, big meeting, uh, <laughs> and challenge them is, has turned out to be a very um, poor way to try and bring about any kind of coaching or change. Mm-hmm. We heard from numerous folks, mid-level executives, senior executives, and board members, one-on-one conversations work much better. And sometimes the key is to go to someone who has the visionary's ear, let them know that there's an issue so that 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 one-on-one person with a special relationship can have a conversation. So so just confrontation is not the goal. It's constructive conversation. So so pay attention to how you tell the story about what needs to be changed as well as what needs to be said. 
But you also said something important. You said, oh, you might get fired. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is, is that, that if it's important enough to speak out about, particularly if it's a reoccurring theme, you should be willing to get fired. You should be willing to quit in order to say, this is bad. This mm-hmm. is not something that should be tolerated. And drawing attention to it by leaving was something we heard from board members as well. They need to be able to put it on the line. It's this fear of saying this is bad enough that it deserves action. And if you don't take action, then I have to go. Now, that that sounds very difficult, but the reality is is that in most cases you won't have to go. It's just that it puts it on the line. And I think uh, uh, another thing that that happens is that Often, if you are, there, you may not be the only one who understand, who sees this toxic culture, mm-hmm. and who has been uh, uh, that has seen the effect of dealing with this this uh, brilliant jerk, and so uh, the board needs to find out. So often, mm-hmm. what we find from executives and middle level employees, uh, when after these uh, events occur is people said, yes, I knew those things were happening. I knew that he was mean to people. I knew he used to yell at people mm. and demean people. But what was I going to do? Mm. And so, and the board members say, well, if you would have told me, we could have done something about it. So I think it's the responsibility of executives, of middle-level managers, when they see something, they should say something. And so, And what they might find is, Rather than them getting fired, it's they finds out that other people have exactly the same view. And if they go to the board, the board can deal with it. And the board may be able to deal with it in various ways. It's a matter of collaboration, going to the CEO and saying, we're hearing these problems. Let's figure out a way to solve them. And what we it's not that we want the CEO to be fired as what happened with Adam Newman uh, last week, but we first need to see if there's a way to resolve it for the benefit of the company. And that's often right. there is. And that's a good point. A metaphor would be that you know if there's bad stuff happening mm-hmm. uh, and it's blocked entirely, no, no, it's like a dam. And it builds up and builds up. And when you see a Kalanick or a Newman get fired, it's because the dam broke and Mm. all of this information came rushing out and it was overwhelming. Uh, The reality is it should have had a flow. And what we're talking about is not only transparency, but uh, these constructive conversations, being willing to, to check with others, to find out, to see how to help the company be successful. If in, I'll be bold and say this. If you reach a point where you have to fire this dominant visionary CEO, in some respects, the executives, the employees, and the board, and certainly the investors, haven't done the job to make sure that they could be successful. They, they, they let them go on their own. Remember, these folks are rule breakers and they don't like to be challenged, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be challenged in a constructive manner. Nice. And as we start to wind down the show, I have um, one or two wrapping up questions for you guys. We've talked a lot about business. We've talked a lot about personalities. Now, I kind of want you guys to help us with some case studies, for example. So I know you guys have consulted with dozens of firms with this. So could you, without naming names, without naming anything that will give away any identities, could you give us some, you know, a hands-on 
examples of where you've intervened in a situation like this, what the outcome was, and what the results were? Well, I can start with one of the ones I was referring to earlier about the family company. I'll start okay. there with this the smaller company. Uh, so the, this uh, was a very large family company with the children, four children involved in the company. Uh, and um, they, the, the parent was on one hand trying to run the company, but also trying to bring the children along but wasn't doing much of a job of really helping the children learn what needed to be done and was dominant, partly just because he was the father of, uh, uh, and had started the company 30 or 40 years earlier. Uh, and it's important that the children uh, started to learn what needed to, how to run the company and started to learn that they shouldn't be voting uh, on a board without knowing what they're voting for. And that we see that common, not only on family boards, but on large boards, where we have, I mean, you see that with Theranos, you see that with Enron, you see these cases where the reports are that the board members really didn't necessarily understand all the activities going on in the company, but still voted. Uh, so we we intervened to, to, to basically help train the, the children of how to, go about managing the company, understanding the financial issues being voted on in the meetings, and train the CEO, the founder, to learn how to uh, get involved in training the, the children and respecting what the children had to say. And that's really a big part of this in small and large companies, this mutual respect that has to happen. Mm. For CEOs with large or small companies and boards, it needs to be a collaborative relationship. This is not about a CEO running the company. This is about a CEO. Remember, the, the board has a role of strategic oversight mm -hmm. and accountability. So this needs to be both of them working together to try to, to best manage the company for the long term. Nice. And my final question for today before I let you guys go is um, given, you know, we're not done with innovation, innovation is going to continue. We're actually living in a rapid age of innovation with AI, robotics, machine learning. Um, what are some things people can do? And this is to say, if, um, take for example, somebody listening to this is trying to start their own company and it's trying to keep on pace in terms of, okay, I'm building a business. It might be a small five-person startup, but I need to make sure that as I start, I have good habits and good practice put into place so that despite the fact that I'm applying innovation, I don't want to end up as a brilliant jerk in five, ten years when my company is ready to go prime time. So what are some good habits and good steps that people can start putting into place as startups and small businesses? I'll, uh, I'll jump in on that just uh, to get the conversation or to finish up and, and move it forward. Um, and then Mark can join in. I think a good thing to do is for the leader um, and, and, and their team um, to, to talk about what the leader has uh, and doesn't have. So, for instance, where are they smart? Are they brilliant technologists but maybe don't 
aren't that big on business models or financial areas. So are there gaps? Um, uh, and where are their strengths? And where maybe should they fill in with partnerships or collaboration, an adult in the room to help them? Um, what's their propensity to break rules? Are they inherently a rule breaker that just walks through um, uh, any set of rules without paying attention because their vision empowers them to do that? Uh, that's important to understand just you know, where they will break rules and how many they will. And also um, a little bit of their impulsiveness and ethical compass. Uh, people will tell you that they've got good control of their impulses and, and of their ethics. But the reality is, is that it's good to have a conversation about where the ethical boundaries are. I mean, Kalanick at Uber felt that he was empowered to challenge all of the laws around established rules and regulations. Um, knowing that that was okay or that he felt it was okay allowed him to just move forward. Mm. But um, had there been a conversation about it, and that's at the heart of this. It's not just self-reflection. It's a conversation. Would have allowed him to understand that that was potentially a dangerous thing to do. So I think that having a leader start a constructive conversation about their capabilities and strengths and weaknesses is the starting point to help them avoid this negative downside that could actually corrode the value that they're going to create. Right. And just to... Uh add in one thing. So so I think, uh, as you say, if we're starting with a new company and having a, a small five-person company startup, I think uh, I would really think about, number one, collaboration. Understand mm -hmm. it's the CEO, if, you're, if, if somebody's starting a company, they should, number one, recognize, though they think they're smart, and though they think they have great vision, and though they think they have great charisma, and they might have all those things, there are other views and other opinions that they ought to seek. So it's about collaborating with the whole team and collaborating possibly even with suppliers and customers. And it's also, um, it's a matter of listening to contrary opinions. Too often with these founders, they have not listened well to contrary opinions and haven't given respect to other people. And those are critical elements for a successful startup. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put a fine point on it. Uh, if you're the in a five-person startup and you're that dominant visionary and you're getting ready to go, you're like a jet engine. You can take uh, this, you know, go places better and faster, maybe even at hyperspeed. But you need wings. You need someone to give you the lift. And you need a... a um, you need guidance um, system. Uh, an engine by itself isn't, isn't going to work. And ultimately, you need some control of the thrust. You need to know when to pull back and, and when to accelerate. And those are the things that a leader should look for. Who provides the wings, the mm -hmm. guidance, and the, the, gui the, the information on when to increase thrust and when to pull back? Awesome. So with that said, gentlemen, thanks a lot for coming to do this interview today. I truly appreciate the time you guys have shared with us, teaching us how to manage brilliant jerks and how to deal with them in the workplace. But before I let you two go, tell us a little bit more about where people can get in touch with either one of you and where we can purchase the book. Thank you very much. The book is available on Amazon, um, and you can find us on uh, theconundrumpress.com. 
our website, and reach us at theconundrumpress at gmail.com. Okay. The Conundrum Press, and I'll be sure to put that in the links in the show notes when this episode is edited and ready to go live. So, so thanks a lot, gentlemen, for coming to share your story. I truly appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thank you very Great much. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. Or you can find the podcast on Google, iTunes, or whatever podcast player you listen to by simply searching the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.